Hello, and welcome into the Star Wars Legends Lounge, the show that celebrates the books from Star Wars Legends. I'm Aaron Motes. On today's episode, we jump back to the prequel era. It's The Approaching Storm by Alan Dean Foster, a story leading up to the events of Episode 2, Attack of the Clones. The secessionist movement is gaining steam, with more and more people in the galaxy becoming disillusioned with the Republic. Several government members of the planet Ancyon, backed by a local gangster and the powerful Commerce Guild, are voting on whether to secede, which could start a domino effect of neighboring planets in the mid-rim. The Jedi Council dispatches Masters Obi-Wan Kenobi and Luminara Induli, along with their Padawans, Anakin Skywalker and Barriss Afi, to get the leaders to sign a pledge to stay with the Republic. But the task proves more difficult than originally thought, as the Jedi must first broker a peace between the Ancianian city-dwellers and the Alwari nomads roaming the plains. Can the Jedi convince the leaders of Ancion to remain in the Republic? We'll find out coming up soon. But first, it's listener question time. I have three questions today. First up, it's listener Joe, who says, In canon, the only times we see Darth Vader lose in combat or either early on when he's still getting used to his new body, or when he's fighting someone meaningful to Anakin. He lost pretty bad to Ahsoka in Rebels, Obi-Wan Kenobi in his new TV show, and then ultimately lost to Luke in Return of the Jedi. Do you think this was purely mental, or did he let himself lose to the important people in his life? Great question, Joe. As I've said many times before, Darth Vader is my favorite character in Star Wars, so anytime I get to answer a Vader question, it's a little gift in my inbox. Let me start out, Joe, by saying I disagree with one implication in your email. You say that the only times we see Vader lose in combat, and I know what you're saying. Yes, Vader is the boogeyman. He destroys armies. He hunts down Jedi. He puts down rebel cells throughout the galaxy. So, yes... For the most part, what you're saying is true. Vader wins his battles. But, I would say that when it comes to the main beats of the Star Wars saga, Vader loses. He always loses. And that's the most important part of his character, in my opinion. Vader fails to keep Padme safe. He fails to use the Sith Temple on Malachor. He fails numerous times to defeat his former master between the Obi-Wan TV show and A New Hope. He fails to stop the Rebels from getting the Death Star plans. He fails to get the location of Yavin 4 while torturing Leia. Vader fails to stop Luke blowing up the Death Star. And he fails to turn Luke to the dark side to join Vader to overthrow the Empire. Honestly, I don't think his failures have much to do with Vader getting used to the suit or any affinity he has toward Luke, Obi-Wan, or Ahsoka. I think Vader fails in the most important parts of the story because Vader is a failure. By using anger and fear and an obsession to control everything in his life and the galaxy, Vader didn't become the most powerful Force user like Anakin Skywalker dreamed of being. No, he became a slave, just like little Annie growing up on Tatooine. And that's why Vader always fails, in my opinion, because he was never able to advance beyond what he was before Anakin Skywalker 
fell to the dark side. Thank you very much for the email, Joe. Today's second question comes from listener Jackson, who says, If Lucasfilm came to you today with a blank check and asked you to pick a book or series you have already covered on your podcast to put on film, what would it be? You have total control over budget, set design, filming location, etc. Pick your cast of characters alive today. You can pick from veteran Star Wars actors or recast them. You have unlimited power. Great email, Jackson. Now, before I answer, let me go over the rules that you set out once again. A book or series that I've already covered on the podcast. Actors that are living today. And I have unlimited power to change things that I think could be improved upon. My first thought is to make a four to five season X-Wing series. But since Lucasfilm has a Rogue Squadron movie in the works, I'm going to take that off the table. So I'm going to go a bit off the wall and make a combination Coruscant Knights slash Shadow Games television series. A story about the nascent rebellion and the small folk in the lower levels of Coruscant, right under the nose of Imperial power. Now I know what you're thinking. Isn't that kind of the premise of the upcoming Andor show? I admit there is some overlap, but from what we've gotten so far, it seems like most of that stuff surrounds the regular galactic citizens taking place on other planets, and most of the Coruscant stuff revolves around Mon Mothma and other senators. I'm talking about the people living 50 levels below on Imperial Center, a small cell of people who are fed up with how the Imperials are treating their neighbors, making them more impoverished, turning aliens into second- and third-class citizens, and they're fighting back. Jax Pavin is no longer a Jedi, but an investigator with the Coruscant Police Force, and Larenth Tarek is now a journalist working alongside Den Dur. And they've had enough. They use their positions to undercut the Empire and slip information to rebel cells. For Jax Pavin, I'm casting Christopher Sean, the actor who provided the voice of Kaz on Star Wars Resistance. For Larenth, she's going to be played by Sonequa Martin-Green of Star Trek Discovery and The Walking Dead. And for the Celestin Den Dur, he'll be voiced by D. Bradley Baker, of course, Mr. Star Wars voice acting. Now, for Dash Rendar, he'll be played by Scott Eastwood of Suicide Squad and Pacific Rim Uprising fame. And I'd cast an underworld gangster played by Walton Goggins of Justified. And of course, the big bad of the show would be an Imperial Security Bureau agent. Let's have him played by Jamie Bell. Set it in a dark, densely populated city, like how we see pictures of Shanghai or Hong Kong at night. That's the show I want to make. Thank you very much for the email, Jackson. Today's final email comes from listener Jack, who says, I'm a lifelong Star Wars fan and have recently started reading Legends after listening to your shows on Darth Bane and then Rogue Squadron. After finishing the Old Republic series featuring Revan, I was curious if you knew of any other Force users who were able to balance on the thin edge of the dark and light sides of the Force. Do you think that in the future of Star Wars... Will Revan and Bastila Shan's views of the Force become more popular to the Jedi than it was during the age of the Old Republic or even the prequel era? Thanks for the email, Jack, 
and I'm glad you're enjoying your journey through the stories of Star Wars Legends. Speaking of Revan, I'll be covering four Old Republic books to end the year in November and December. Now, as to your question, I think we already have an idea of how Lucasfilm will address Force users who use both the light and dark sides of the Force. Namely, they won't. In one of the drafts of director Colin Trevorrow's scripts for The Rise of Skywalker, it mentions that Rey uses, quote, necessary rage in order to do something, presumably dipping into the dark side of the Force in order to achieve a goal. That goes against how George Lucas has always explained the Force. Lucas has repeatedly said the Force user can not just dip into the dark side without falling further and further down the hole. And yes, I know Lucas no longer has a say in Star Wars, but I think the people running Lucasfilm still try to follow the rules that George set for the universe. So I don't think gray Force users will be a thing in Star Wars anytime soon. Now I know what you're going to ask. Aaron, what about the Bendu in Star Wars Rebels? He says he's the one in the middle between the Jedi and Sith. But I think what we're talking about is not the way Dave Filoni said he envisions the character. Not that he was both light and dark, but that Bendu was neutral, that it wasn't interested in taking sides. Basically, that Bendu was, to paraphrase Filoni, just out there, and the Jedi showed up and interrupted his nap. Now, if they were to utilize Force users that walk the edge between light and dark, I think it would most likely be in a video game, like the rumored Knights of the Old Republic remake, featuring, of course, Revan. But I would love to see somewhere in Star Wars a redemption of a dark side character. Not like Anakin or Ben Solo, where they return to the light side just before death, but an actual dark side user who sees the errors of their way and tries to repent. How will the galaxy treat them? What kind of restitution will they be forced to pay? I kind of imagine it like a former drug addict who's always living with the temptation of their addiction hanging over them, who's trying to make amends, but who is never really trusted by anyone, even their closest loved ones. I think we came close with Asajj Ventress, but of course, the Clone Wars television show ended the first time before we got a bunch of the Asajj Ventress and Quinlan Voss stories that were then made into the book Dark Disciple. Thank you very much for the email, Jack. Now, if you have a question for the show, listener, please email me at swlegendslounge at gmail.com, or you can send me a tweet at legendslounge1. Or if you'd like to get your voice on the show, just record yourself and email it in. Please, though, record your file in MP3 or MP4 audio format. Now, coming up at the end of today's show, I've got more listener favorite fighter squadrons and a special announcement. So stay tuned for that. Now it's time to dive into today's book. It's The Approaching Storm by Alan Dean Foster. Grab yourself a drink and let's head in to the Star Wars Legends Lounge. The story begins with a conspiracy. 
the head of the Commerce Guild, Shu Mai, and Senator Mosul meet with a small group of business leaders to discuss the growing bureaucratic red tape of the Republic and whether or not seceding will increase profits. The Cabal is waiting for a flashpoint, and at flashpoint is the planet Ancyon. It's not an important planet, but it's got a bunch of agreements with other mid-realm worlds. If Ancyon secedes, it's pretty clear that four or five others will secede also. Ancyon's government is planning to vote on the issue soon. The Jedi Council is sending representatives to try and keep Ancyon in the Republic. Shu Mai issues an order to Ancyon's resident crime boss, Sirg the Hutt. Do what you need to do to ensure Ancyon votes to secede. In Ancyon's capital city of Quirpanum, Obi-Wan Kenobi, Luminara Anduli, and their Padawans meet with members of the Unity Council, a group of government officials representing the planet's cities. The officials represent most of the economic power on Ancyon. They've grown frustrated with the ever-growing red tape and tax laws from the Republic, and they're considering secession. The Jedi tell the officials that seceding from the Republic will plunge the mid-rim into chaos, that Ancyon pulling out of the Republic will bring many others along with it. But the problem facing Ancyon is really an internal one. The planet is divided between those that live in the cities and the Alwari nomads that roam the planet's grasslands. The Unity Council wants to expand its profits, but the nomadic tribes refuse to allow them to expand out of their cities, and the Republic's laws are stifling economic expansion off-world. Luminara asks the Unity Council what they can do to ensure Ancyon remains in the Republic. The Council says they need the Alwari to allow them access to natural resources and development in the grasslands. As the Jedi prepare to head out to speak to the Alwari, they head to the merchant area of Quirpernum to gather supplies. As Obi-Wan and Luminara search for transportation, Anakin Skywalker and Barriss Afi search for rations and water. When the Padawans split up to buy supplies, Barriss is attacked and kidnapped by a pair of clanless Alwari thugs hired by Sirg. They take Barriss to a safe house to hold her for the hut, keeping the Jedi in the city. But Barriss is a natural healer, and she can feel that the pair are hurting mentally. They're damaged goods. Barriss uses the Force to heal their pain, to fix the injuries to their brains. Grateful, the clanless Alwari release Barriss and vow to guide the Jedi to find the Barokii clan, the largest and most influential clan of the Alwari nomads. The first tribe they meet on the plains is the Yiwa, a minor clan according to their guides, but the Yiwa may have information about the Barokii and where they are. The Yiwa invite the Jedi into their camp, but they're a distrustful people. They won't give the Jedi any information unless they can get a glimpse of their sincerity by looking into their souls. To do that, the nomads ask the Jedi to perform for them. Barriss begins by putting on a fantastic lightsaber display, showing off her acrobatic skills. She jumps and spins around the center ring, amazing the Yiwa. Anakin Skywalker is to follow, but the headstrong Padawan is initially hesitant. How can he follow what Barriss just did? Standing alone in the ring, Anakin's thoughts go to his mother and the song they used to sing together. He starts softly, 
but his voice soon rises, surrounding the circle and all those in the audience. And even though many of the Yiwa don't understand Anakin's words, they can feel the melancholy and the sadness in his song. When he finishes, everyone is impressed, especially Obi-Wan, who congratulates his Padawan on the performance. But then it's Kenobi's turn, and he begins telling a story. Initially unimpressed, many of the Iwa begin to leave the circle or talk amongst themselves. But, as Obi-Wan's stories grows, so it seems does Obi-Wan. His words are like honey. Soon, everyone in the camp is holding on to every word, including Anakin, Luminara, and Barriss. When his story ends, the crowd is silent, mesmerized. Finally, Master Luminara enters the ring, and she begins to use the Force, using the sand in the ring to swirl around her like a snow globe. It's a display unlike anything the Yiwa have ever seen before. The sand spins and moves around Luminara, and ends with a splash back down to the ring. The displays win over the Yiwa, and the clan points them in the direction of where the Barokii were last seen. After a few more days of travel, the group arrives at the Barokii camp, but when they ask for an audience with the clan elders, they're refused. The Barokii offer their hospitality, but they're not interested in a treaty with the Unity Council. However, they agree to grant the Jedi an audience, but only if they can pass a test. Cut a tuft of fur from one of the albinos of their herd animals, and they will listen to the Jedi. The catch? There are only two albinos in a herd of thousands, and the animals are big, heavy, and jumpy, and they can only use traditional Alwari technology. The Jedi discuss the challenge, and they realize there isn't any good solution. Finally, Luminara decides to simply run along the top of the animals, jumping from beast to beast, searching for the albinos hiding in the center of the herd. She gets the fur and starts back, but slips and falls, disappearing from view. Obi-Wan, Anakin, and Barriss join hands and walk into the herd, using the Force to keep the animals calm, forcing them to part, allowing the Jedi a path to their fallen comrade. Anakin carries an unconscious Luminara while the Jedi exit the herd. Quickly, Barriss attends to Luminara, but luckily, her master isn't badly injured. Barriss uses her abilities to heal Luminara, and, with the Barokii crowd witnessing her success, the elders grant the Jedi their audience. The offer is simple. The Unity Council wants access to half of the grasslands. In exchange, they will allow the Alwari to sell their goods in the cities and at the spaceports. The elders confer and agree to sign the treaty, but only if the Jedi help them defeat their largest rivals, the Janul clan. Luminara, Barris, and Anakin are taken aback. The one thing the Jedi can't do is fight a war for the Barokii. But, just as Luminara begins to refuse the elders, Obi-Wan cuts in, speaking up, and agrees to the terms. Back in Quipernum, Sirg pressures the Unity Council to vote. The Jedi have been gone for too long. Heck, they don't even know if the Jedi are still on the planet. But some on the Council want to give the Jedi more time. Finally, they agree to take the vote at the end of the week, regardless if the Jedi have returned or not. 
In the grasslands, Luminara confronts Obi-Wan. The Jedi cannot take sides in the fighting between the Barokii and the Janul. But Obi-Wan has a plan. He didn't agree to fight the Janul. The Barokii elders asked the Jedi to help defeat the Janul. They can find another way. The Jedi lead the Barokii onto the battlefield outside of the Janul camp. But instead of attacking, Obi-Wan cries out to both sides, imploring them to put aside their issues and come together to sign the pact with the Unity Council and to keep Ancion in the Republic. Both sides are insulted, and both send their forward platoons to attack the Jedi. But the four use the light But the four use their lightsabers and the force to disarm all the warriors. The display of power, while not killing or injuring anyone, stuns the Alwari. And, with the warriors no longer willing to attack, the clan elders on both sides agree to meet. Of course, they agree to the treaty and the Jedi head back to Quirkbanum. In the capital, the Jedi arrive just before the Unity Council holds its vote. But, with the treaty signed by the two Awari overclans, the vote goes in favor of the Republic, 9-2. The secessionist movement is stymied, at least for now. Time for a break. When we come back, I'll talk more about the approaching storm. I'm Aaron Motes. Stay tuned. You're listening to the Star Wars Legends Lounge. Thanks for listening to the Star Wars Legends Lounge, where we celebrate the books from Star Wars Legends. But allow me to suggest a book from Star Wars canon. Queen Shadow is the story of Padme Amidala, after she steps down as queen and steps up to represent Naboo in the Galactic Senate. Together with her loyal handmaidens and the help of new allies, Padme tries to navigate the labyrinth that is galactic politics on Coruscant. That's Queen Shadow by E.K. Johnston. Welcome back to the Star Wars Legends Lounge, the show that celebrates the books from Star Wars Legends. I'm Aaron Motes, and today's book is The Approaching Storm by Alan Dean Foster. If you look online at many of the reviews of this book, most of them are in the middle. There are some good things about this book. There are things that people don't like about this book. I will tell you, I was surprised. I enjoyed this book more than what I thought. Now, were there parts of it that drug along and parts that I think Foster could have cut out? Absolutely. There's a section in the middle with a bunch of strange, little, annoying aliens that kind of remind you of Ewoks. Of course, they're not Ewoks because they can actually speak basic to some degree, but that's kind of what they remind you of. And one of them decides to go along with the Jedi to see the Barokii. I kind of wish that wasn't in the book, but besides a few of those parts... I like this book a lot more than I expected going into it. One of the things I noticed about this story is the dialogue. It's very reminiscent of the dialogue in the prequel films. The dialogue that gets criticized by many Star Wars fans. 
criticized by myself. These are things that you just can't say. We know that Harrison Ford in the original Star Wars, A New Hope, really criticized the dialogue that George Lucas had written. It seemed to get better in The Empire Strikes Back and Return of the Jedi, but then, of course, Lucas didn't write those scripts. The dialogue in The Approaching Storm reminded me a lot of the dialogue in Attack of the Clones and Revenge of the Sith. If you're reading the book, it's one thing. I challenge anyone while they're reading the book, though, when they get to some of those passages, read them out loud. It is difficult to say. Of course, we know Alan Dean Foster, of all of the authors in Star Wars Legends, Alan Dean Foster was the one that was closest to George Lucas. Uh, Lucas, at one point, considered him a friend. I bet he still does. I don't know that, but at least back at the time of the filming of A New Hope, Lucas considered Foster a friend. In fact, Foster wrote the novelization of A New Hope and then, of course, wrote Splinter of the Mind's Eye right afterward. So while Lucas was notoriously kind of laissez-faire with the authors of many of the Legends books, particularly in the 90s and early 2000s, I bet if one author was able to pick Lucas's brain, it would have been Alan Dean Foster. This book came out just after Attack of the Clones hit the theaters, which means Foster had to be writing it before the release of the film. I'm wondering if Foster got any word from George as to what was going to be taking place in the movie. And then did he see any parts of the scripts, particularly the dialogue, particularly the political dialogue, which there is a good amount in this book. But my favorite scene in the story is the scene where the Yiwa clan asks the Jedi to entertain them at dinner in order for the Yiwa to look into the Jedi's souls. It's something that we never really see, this other side of the Jedi. Obi-Wan Kenobi is a brilliant storyteller. Who knew that Anakin Skywalker had a beautiful singing voice? And Barris Offee is an acrobat and gymnast. And it's not like this is a short scene. This scene takes place over about three or four pages. These are talents that these Jedi have that they never show each other. I kind of like that. I wish we saw more of that. You know, what special talent does Ahsoka Tano have? Or Luke Skywalker? Or in Legends, what special talent does Corrin Horn have? Jaina Solo, Jason Solo, Anakin Solo. It doesn't have to be a big part of their character, obviously. But it's just something nice to see. Because people are obviously more than meets the eye. They're not just their jobs. They're not just Jedi. The Barris Afi of Legends is a healer. The Barris Afi that we know in canon becomes disillusioned with the Republic and the Jedi Order, and she fights back. 
I'd love to see a story in canon of Padawan Barris Afi that show her healing abilities like it does in Legends. But it was a really good scene. Now, I'm not going to lie and say that this was one of my favorite Legends books of all time. It's not. Like I said, there are slow parts to it. There are parts that I think that Foster could have done better or just cut entirely. But the approaching storm was better than I expected going in. And for any of you who have not read the book, yeah, I'd recommend it. Moving on, I have more Star Wars fighter squadrons. Today's first squadron comes from listener Jamie, who has come up with a multi-prong attack force. It begins with Phoenix Squadron from the Rebels animated show. Hera Syndulla, Kanan Jarrus, Ezra Bridger, Zeb of the Lothal, and Sabine Wren. And since Kanan doesn't like working with stormtroopers, they're going to be supported by the first Wookiee expeditionary force, consisting of Chewbacca, Jowdry, Drianta, Sharan, and Lobaka, and an X-Wing squad of support featuring Wedge Antilles, Poe Dameron, Corrin Horn, and Janna from The Rise of Skywalker. Then, also in support, is the Millennium Falcon, crewed by Han Solo and Rey, with Finn and Lando as the gunners. A ground attack team featuring the Bad Batch, led by Captain Rex. And their air support will be led by Luke Skywalker, Anakin Skywalker, Din Djarin, and Boba Fett. They all fly their own ships. X-Wing, Jedi Starfighter, N1 Starfighter, and Slave One. Jamie says he feels that you would see a lot of havoc being raised and the enemy running in fear. Awesome picks, Jamie. I love it, love it, love it. Now today's second entry comes from Dan B., who has named his squadron Twins Squadron, partially because of the twin theme throughout Star Wars, but also because Dan says he has twins of his own. So, three flights of fighters and a wildcard pilot in each flight. Dan says the wildcard is there to keep everyone on their toes. So, here we go. Twin Squadron. Twin 1. Jedi Master Plo Koon, Squadron Commander and the leader of one flight. Dan says Master Plo is a great pilot and teacher. Twin 2, Ahsoka Tano. Twin 3, Poe Dameron, Dan's first wildcard pilot. And Twin 4, Din Djarin. Twin 5, Wedge Antilles, the leader of two flight. Twin 6, Aiden Versio from the Battlefront 2 video game. Twin 7, Harris Syndulla. And Twin 8, Han Solo, Dan's second wildcard. Twin 9, the leader of 3-Flight, Anakin Skywalker, another wildcard pilot. Twin 10, Chewbacca. Now, Dan, i got to ask a question. Do you think Chewie is disappointed, or is he actually happy that he's not in the same flight as Han Solo? Something to think about. Twin 11, Luke Skywalker. And Twin 12, Ray Palpatine Skywalker. Great selections, Dan B. Again... Everybody keep them coming. Send me your Starfighter Squadrons, and they can be from anything. Movies, television shows, animation, books, comics, video games, 
canon, legends, none of the different Star Wars continuities. I don't care. There's no rules here. Just tell me who would make the most awesome fighter squadron from your favorite characters. I love reading these. Now, time to wrap up. If you have a question or comment for the show, you can email me at swlegendslounge at gmail.com or send a tweet at legendslounge1. Or, if you want to get your voice on the show, just record an audio file and email it in. I'd love to hear from you. Just record it in MP3 or MP4 audio format. Coming up on the next episode, it's another Clone Wars-era novel, The Cestus Deception by Stephen Barnes. I'm really excited to read it. That episode comes out September 2nd. Now, before I go, like I said at the beginning of the show, I have a special announcement. I've received so many emails lately that it's getting a little tough to try and schedule them out several episodes into the future. So, I'm going to do a special listener question show next weekend, featuring the show's first ever special guest. Keep an eye out for that. The episode will pop up in your podcast feed in just over a week. Once again, thank you so much for listening to the Star Wars Legends Lounge. I'm Aaron Motes. May the Force be with you. And remember, there's always a bit of truth in Legends.